You want to join me in Exodus chapter 24. We'll continue where we left off there in the book of Exodus. At this point in Exodus 24, we've kind of come to the end of uh, the section really where uh, we have been receiving uh, the law of God given to the nation of Israel. And at this time, God has now called up Moses and some of the leaders uh, to the top of the mountain uh, to be there uh, near his presence. And it seems at this point, God is kind of now ratifying the covenant after having made the covenant with them. He's now ratifying the covenant. We began to look at chapter 24 last time and went down as far as verse uh, 8, which would have us picking up in the ninth verse. But for sake of just kind of getting a running start into what we're looking at, let's just go back to the beginning of chapter 24. And I'll just kind of read down through verses 1 through 8. And we'll pick back up in the flow there in verse 9, right where we left off. It tells us in chapter 24 uh, that God had said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu, those are the two eldest sons of Aaron, who, remember, would become the high priest. We'll see in a few chapters as God establishes the priesthood uh, that Nadab and Abihu are two of the elder sons of Aaron. And also 70 of the elders of Israel, perhaps those uh, individuals that a few chapters back Moses delegated some of the responsibility to to function as judges among the society there in Israel to uh, sort of uh, execute the different laws of God, the social regulations and uh, ways they were to function in society as we've been studying in the last few chapters together, looking at the different civil laws that would govern the people. And he tells them to come up and to worship from afar. And Moses alone, again, notice, having special privilege, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. <clears throat> so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote, remember, all the words of the Lord. So he recorded these things uh, that we've looked at in the prior chapters. Here we have testimony that Moses not only received these things, but actually physically recorded them in written form. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. So he rehearsed uh, the words of the law of God, uh, which we've kind of looked at from chapters 20 up through chapter 23. He rehearsed these words verbally speaking. Speaking them to the people, and then he said, they said, excuse me, in response to hearing the word of the Lord, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Now, certainly they fall short of that. We talked about that last time, but nonetheless, uh, certainly a great heart intention uh, that the people express upon hearing the word of the Lord. As they hear the word of God read to them, two times we see in this chapter that they say, all the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. In other words, the people understood that the word of God was something that they should be responsive to. And I think that's certainly very, very important for us because 
You know, it's very easy to begin as we even fall in love with the Word of God and even in a ministry like ours here. I mean, we're a people certainly uh, in Calvary Chapel who put a great emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God and we love to learn its truths and precept upon precept and hear a little, there a little, to go chapter and verse through the entire Bible. But uh, we really have to be careful that the Word of God does not just become reduced to something uh, really like just an intellectual exercise where we really begin to love a Acquiring more knowledge of the Word of God and, and we enjoy learning more truths and scripture principles and yet we begin to fail to in a personal way want to be responsive to what God is speaking to us. So whether it's me reading in my personal private devotional life or the times when you pick up God's Word and read it for yourself privately or the times when we're studying the truths of God's Word, really the, the holy ideal is that we would be responsive to God's Word, that we would hear what it says and that we would want to respond to it in an obedient way, that what God's spoken in his word, we would want to put into practice, like James says, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. Because if we're only hearing God's word, not doing it, the Bible says that really we begin to deceive ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves thinking that really that there's not something personal and direct it's trying to say to us, whether it's making an adjustment in our spiritual direction, maybe a word of correction or a word of God confirming something to us or giving us a promise so that we would rely upon his word rather than trying to work things out in our own efforts or our flesh or maybe God's instructing us of what to do in a situation. But I just love how we find these occasions here in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches uh, at Pentecost. There it says the people were cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And I love that statement because I really think that when the Spirit of God is at work among the people of God, that when we're hearing the word of the Lord, that there should be a responsiveness to our hearts. Again, a lot of times I'll make mention on Sunday morning as we're closing a service or you know singing a final song. That, you know, that's not just kind of like, the, okay, let's just have the wrap-up song because it seems awkward if we say amen and just walk out uh, and it'd be a strange silence there. So we kind of ease out of it like with a song, like the last song as you're kind of heading out of the stadium of a baseball game or so just kind of, well, let's hear a final song as we kind of act. No, that, that's an opportunity for us in worship to respond to what the Spirit of God has said to us and to say, Lord, what shall we do? What do you want me to do with this? I think I heard you say something or a few things to me through this message. So, Lord, how am I to respond to this? What am I to do with it? Is there a, a, a lesson to be obeyed this week? Is there an adjustment or a correction that needs to be made in my life? Is there a commitment that I should make? Is there uh, you know, some promise that I should walk out of here holding on to in faith rather than going right back into the same anxiety or depression or fear or, or self-efforts where I'm trying to manipulate something and make it work on my own? Instead, Lord, is there a promise that I should hold on to and leave here with a faith and a restfulness to say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you because your promise has said this to me in your word. But I just, I love these occasions when we find them in the scripture where people hear Nehemiah 8, Acts 2, that there's a heart to want to be responsive to what they hear when the word of God 
is spoken to them, a great ideal certainly. In verse 8, we saw as we left off, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. So again, he ratifies the covenant by sprinkling some of the blood from the sacrifices on the uh, altar itself, the place of worship. Then the other half of the blood is sprinkled actually on the people. There's a blood covenant being made here with God under the Old Testament law. He ratifies his covenant with blood, of course, just points to how ultimately God would ratify the new covenant through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, a new covenant I make with you. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. But here, God ratifies his commitment. And again, as his covenant, the blood of the covenant, it says in verse 8, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And again, I'm so thankful that uh, the covenant that God makes is based upon blood and ultimately it's the blood of Jesus that seals the New Testament covenant that allows you to have access and me to have access to God by faith alone through that finished work. So here God establishes this covenant. It's a unique covenant as he gives to them the law. In verse 8 now, we see the next moment after the ratification of this covenant is now the people begin to experience access into the presence of God. And of course, just a great picture, a reminder of how ultimately not just Moses and a few leaders, as we see here, ultimately all of us at the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus' blood, can all have direct access into the presence of God, not just the select few, as was the case under the old covenant with the law. So verse 9, after the covenants ratified in blood, Moses went up also, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. Uh, typically, sapphire stone is a bluish hue and color. The majority of sapphire stones, research apparently tells me there are other colors, but typically the sapphire is a bluish hue, the majority of them. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So again, the writer's trying to describe it in language that's you know metaphorical language he's trying to draw simile says it's like it was like it says the very heavens in its clarity again we see blue throughout the scriptures typically used symbolically as a representation of heaven when we get to the uh, description of heaven even the book of revelation it says there's a sea of glass uh, that's there uh, before the presence of the throne of god and so there's some experience that they have whereby it says they actually see the God of Israel. Now, we're not told, I mean, how exactly this experience happened, whether or not it was just a vision God gave to them, whether there was an actual manifestation of the presence of God. Again, was this another theophany or a Christophany, as we call them, a pre-incarnate appearance? of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to the time to when he came in the flesh and was born in Bethlehem as a babe and then lived among us for 33 and a half years. There are times where we see that Jesus, again, remember, Jesus is always eternally existent. His life didn't begin when he was born in Bethlehem. We have to always remember that. He is eternally existent together with God the Father he existed on earth and was born into a body of flesh and lived as a man for a set period of time in flesh. But we have occasions where it seems that Jesus showed up in the Old Testament at certain appearances. This could be one of them. Some commentators and scholars believe that that's what this was because verse 11 says, on the nobles of the children of Israel, he, that is God, did not lay his hand so they saw God 
and they ate and drank. Now, we know later on in, in a few chapters from now, when God wants to appear to Moses and he tells Moses, you're going to see me, he says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And, and he says, basically, you'll see my, my, my afterglow in a sense. And he says, because I'm almost as if God hides the glory of God from Moses and Moses gets a glimpse sort of, of kind of just like his afterglow, the rear part of him as he goes by. And God makes this statement, for no man can see me and live. So the question becomes, well, wait a minute here. This says that these certain group of leaders, they actually saw God. So how do they see God and not live? Uh, you know, how do they see, see God excuse me, and live? Because God says, no man can see me and live. Well, one possibility is certainly because of the fact that the Bible says that Jesus was the one who revealed and declared God to us. We saw God in the form of Christ and people were able to see Jesus and to survive. So that could be an indication that this was uh, Jesus manifesting himself here. Uh, it could be that, again, we're just not told that some way there was this unique experience where God did reveal himself and sort of like what happened with Moses because verse 11 does tell us that they saw the God of Israel, but it says he did not lay his hand on them. Meaning what? To lay his hand on them to kill them. <laughs> that he could have potentially laid his hand on them to stay, you know, keep their heart beating and their lungs breathing because if not, if he didn't lay his hand on them and like stabilize them medically, they would have just disintegrated in the presence of God. So that it could be a reference uh, to that very thing because again, the God of glory, the God of Israel, his presence is just so overwhelming. And here they have this beautiful experience as he lays his hand on them. And interesting, what potentially maybe relating back even to verse 8 where the Bible tells us in these verses 7 and 8 that blood was sprinkled on the people. And maybe it was because the hand of God and the blood of the sacrifice was upon them that they were able to be in God's presence and have this experience. And somehow they saw God. And verse 11 actually says they fellowship. It says they actually ate and drank. So they kind of, they had a meal. There was a fellowship moment that took place in this very unique and special way described as the result of the ratification of God's covenant with his people. And verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone. So God was going to inscribe his law on actual physical stone tablets, and the law and the commandments which I have written, God says, that you may teach them. So now God beckons Moses to come further beyond where the leaders were, that he was to go further, closer toward the presence of God, and that he would receive from God inscribed in stone, it says, in tablets of stone, his word. Now, interesting. Think about this. Why would God choose to inscribe his word and his law in stone. I mean, he could have given it to him on, you know, papyrus scrolls. He could have given it to him in any way. But God chooses to inscribe his word in tablets of stone. Well, potentially the reason behind that is because uh, when you inscribe something in stone, that's pretty permanent. Uh, you can't change something once you inscribe something in stone. Uh, that's pretty durable and permanent in its existence. And perhaps God is just pointing out the fact that his word, the Bible says, endures forever. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, the word of the Lord stands forever. That men are like flesh and like grass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. His word is settled in the heavens forever. And God's word does not change. 
So here as God gives his law and gives his word, he inscribes it in stone saying, look, this is my word and it's not going to change. Thou shalt not commit adultery is not going to change. Thou shalt not commit murder. It's not going to change. All of my law, all of my word, all of what we've read in the past few chapters, God says, uh, it doesn't change because I don't change. And I think it's a good reminder for us because we especially today live in a culture where because of people wanting to be relevant and politically correct and the, you know, the, the, the heartthrob for tolerance and all these kind of things and trying to say, well, Bible, look, the Bible is archaic and, and so we need to modernize the, the spiritual truths of God's word. And, and so as a result of that, people are wanting to change what the word of God says and the truths of God's word. Well, listen, God doesn't change. He can't change and he's never going to change. People may want to present that idea, but that is fallacy, and, and, and it's, it's, it's errant, it's wrong. God does not change. He etched his word in stone. His word is settled forever in the heavens, it tells us, so God's word can change. So what God's word says is what God means and what God will always continue to stand behind and be wiser for us to get on the side of, hey, look, this is what God's word says. I know it may not be palatable. I know it may not be politically correct and make everybody happy. I know it may not be what seems to accommodate the lifestyles and the ways that people want to live, but you know what? Uh, that's just what it says. And you're going to have to take that issue up with God. It's not an issue with us. It's an issue with God. This is what God says in his word. It's not an issue of being confrontational. It's just an issue of that that is truth. That is moral authority and God establishes it. And you know, being that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, I think he has the right to do that, don't you? I mean, I think it's fair. Being that he created everything and he keeps people's hearts breathing and you know, heats hearts beating, excuse me, and their lungs breathing. I think he has the right to exercise his authority in the sense that he is God. So here he says, Moses, I've written these things in stone, verse 12. And notice Moses' responsibility once he received those things was to teach those things. You have those things. Now, Moses, you convey them, teach them, explain the word to the people. That was his role as a shepherd leader to teach the truths of God to his people. Verse 13, so Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, who was sort of a protege as Moses sort of raised up Joshua. Remember, ultimately, Joshua will take over the role for Moses. So uh, Moses had Joshua as his assistant, kind of like Elijah had Elijah and Paul had Timothy. We see this pattern in ministry and in the word of God. Moses had Joshua as his assistant with him uh, and his aide would go around with him doing the things that he did. He was together with Moses quite often. And Moses went up to the mountain of of God and he said to the elders wait here for us he and Joshua would go a little further and then ultimately Moses would go beyond where Joshua was to be alone with God but he tells the elders the leaders wait here for us until we come back to you indeed Moses gives instruction Aaron and her remember those are the two that held up the arms of Moses they are with you and if any man has a difficulty let him go to them. So as Moses went to seek God and be in God's presence to receive word from God, to receive direction from God so that he could then impart direction and teaching and instruction to the people of God, he delegates the authority in his absence to Aaron and her. And he says, look, they're still with you. And if you have a difficulty, go to them. They understand the ways of God. They understand my heart. They hold up my arms. And he says, if you have a difficulty in my absence, they can address those things for you. And Moses, verse 15, went up into the mountain 
and a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like, it says, a consuming fire. So you can envision in your mind like this fiery cloud. Remember as God was moving with them through the wilderness, it says that it was a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So here, as the people are looking at the mount where God's presence is being manifested, the glory of God, it says the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Boy, that's, that's a great picture. Again, like a consuming fire. It tells us in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. And what does a consuming fire do? Well, well, fire devours. Fire purges. Fire burns away that which is chaff and what is worthless, and it leaves what is solid and, 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 and sort of more permanent behind. And, and fire has a cleansing effect. Many times it's used in that way. And this is sort of, the, the, you know, when one has an experience with God, when experience with the glory of the Lord uh, is to, in a sense, to let God work in our lives like a consuming fire, to burn out of our lives things that don't belong, the, the chaff and the unnecessary things that don't belong in our lives. God wants to, as we have an encounter and experience with him, sometimes purge and burn out of our lives that which does not belong. And again, you know, fire is a powerful, strong force. You can't play with fire. And again, as Moses goes into the presence of God, it wasn't in a trivial way. It wasn't in a casual way. In fact, if you remember, as we just talked about Nadab and Abihu a few verses ago, in this chapter, we see them experiencing something of the presence of God. Later on in the Old Testament, as we go on further, Nadab and Abihu will actually end up dying and being struck dead by the presence of God because they go before the Lord in a very presumptuous way, it seems, with strange fire, with wrong motivations in their heart, in their ministry, and they kind of presumptuously, casually, just, you know, cavalierly go into the presence of God without reverence and without a purity and sincerity in their heart towards their ministry responsibility, and they actually are struck dead right on the spot. Uh, so, uh, again, important that we remember, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 5 th that we should stand in all of God, that we should draw near with reverence in our hearts, remembering that he is a holy God, like a consuming fire. You, you don't just march into a, a consuming fire uh, in a casual way. You respect fire, you reverence fire, or else you can not only be burnt, but honestly completely destroyed if you're not careful. Verse 18 says, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud. He just sort of disappears as he's enveloped by this glory cloud on the mountain. And he went up into the mountain. And verse 18 says, Moses was on that mountain there in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. So for, for over a month, for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is in the presence of God. We'll see in the next chapters ahead what was happening. He was receiving instruction regarding the tabernacle and its furnishings and how it was to be built regarding the priesthood and the garments and how their priestly ministry was to happen and the sacrificial system. But for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is in the presence of God, no food, no water, and yet he miraculously survives. He's somehow sustained by the presence of God 
alone. Again, almost sort of reminds me how, remember, Jesus said on one occasion, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And somehow Moses, again, we're not told, it's miraculous. You can't go more than a few days without water. We know that biologically and survive. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he sustained in God's presence, which shows uh, that the presence of God and the, the eternal dimension and the spiritual realm, uh, things function in a completely different way than they do in this life because he's sustained by being in God's presence. The presence of God alone was enough to sustain him. And one day, in a sense, when we are literally in the presence of God, uh, I believe that because we have a glorified body, again, it's going to be completely different and we're going to be sustained in a completely different way. Not by oxygen and blood and food. And Jesus in his glorified body said flesh and bone. Uh, he didn't say flesh and blood. He said flesh and bone. So it seems in that resurrected body, there was a completely different system that was operating in the glorified eternal body of Jesus that wasn't like the bodies that we possess now that you know, burn carbon dioxide and, and take in oxygen and need food to survive. It wasn't the same. It was a different experience, a different existence. And here Moses miraculously sustained in the very presence of God for this time as he's hearing from God. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 25 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and now these chapters ahead, 13 chapters or so, will give to us great instruction regarding what we often call the tabernacle, the place where God would manifest his presence and would be this, the location of worship among God's people. He said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering, and from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering and this is the offering which you shall take from them gold silver and bronze blue purple and scarlet thread fine linen and goat's hair ram skins dyed red badger skins and acacia wood oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense and onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So uh, verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So we begin to see here what we're heading into in the chapters ahead. And, and going to be a little bit of tedious reading as we go through some of these things. As God now is going to give to Moses instruction regarding how to build the tabernacle. And we know the tabernacle was basically this tent-like structure uh, that God told the people to build. It was portable. They would set it up and they would then take it back down and they would move from location to location. It was the place where God's presence was manifested among the people. Uh, it was a temporary worship center because ultimately it would be replaced by the temple when they would settle into Israel and they would then build the physical structure, the permanent temple itself. Uh, and as we look at the tabernacle, we're going to see that Moses is receiving all these things by special revelation. He's having a spiritual revelation from God. If you notice in chapter 25, verse 9, God tells him, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. And God says, just so you shall make it. Look at chapter 25, verse 40. 
Chapter 25, verse 40, again, we see this repetitious statement from God. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Look at chapter 26, verse 30. God says to Moses, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. And again, we see this same type of language used again in chapter 27 and other locations where there's this repetitious reminder from God, Moses, make sure that you construct these things, the tabernacle, its furnishings, everything about it, he says, according to what I have shown you. The idea is that he's receiving a revelation from God. He's visually seeing something that existed. And we know from the book of Hebrews in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that what he's actually seeing is a copy and a shadow of things that they were to make in an earthly structure that actually was something that somehow existed in the eternal dimension. It tells us in Revelation, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, I believe it's verse 5, that the things of earth, the earthly tabernacle and all its furnishings they made, that these were a copy and a shadow of eternal things that existed in the heavenly realm. So again, in some way, as we're looking at these things, and it was a literal tent, a literal tabernacle with the altar of incense and, and the table of showbread and the altar of sacrifice and the lampstand, but yet somehow in all these things, they are a picture, a shadow of what actually somehow exists in heaven. So despite how challenging it may be to read through this, well, that's kind of, this is kind of some boring stuff. Well, don't feel bad. You get to study it for an hour. I get to study it to prepare to teach and have to work my way through it. But the benefit is this, because you actually choose to come on a Wednesday night when many of other God's people don't, is when you get there, you won't be a tourist in heaven. Because, see, you'll say, hey, when people, hey, what's that thing over there? Well, I know what that is because I went to church on Wednesday night. So you can have your own little tour guide. You know, I don't know, maybe get some heavenly tips or something, get an extra crown or two to throw at the feet of Jesus and say, I was there on Wednesday. So I know what that is over there. That's the table of showbread. And, and, and somehow these things uh, have an existence in the heavenly realm. Uh, where Jesus ultimately would go in and apply to make the eternal sacrifice, his blood, on the mercy seat. And again, when you read the book of Hebrews and compilation with these chapters, you begin to see some of these things. Now, let me just say this. As we look at the tabernacle, as we'll be doing in these next few chapters ahead, in many ways, the tabernacle is, yes, it was a literal structure. It was an, an, an actual place of a worship system that God gave them to use. But more than that, many of what is seen in it is a copy and a shadow of the person and the life of Jesus, like many of the other things in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, uh, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people, where, was where God manifested his presence among his people. Uh, interesting, John chapter 1 tells us regarding Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When you look at the language, it literally says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So see, in the same way, that tabernacle is where God manifested his presence among his people and dwelt among his people. Jesus, in a body of flesh, in an earthly tent, came and tabernacled among us. God tabernacled and dwelled among us in a body of flesh in an earthly tent 
to manifest his presence among us for those 33 and a half years. In the same way that the, the tabernacle was a temporal structure. It wasn't the permanent structure. The temple became the permanent structure. When Jesus came the first time, that was a temporary existence in the flesh for 33 and a half years. But that wasn't the permanent body of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus took on a permanent resurrected glorified body which he still has so in the same way the tabernacle was temporary and then there will be a permanent temple later on jesus took on a temporary body of flesh for 33 and a half years to manifest god to accomplish redemption and yet now he has a permanent eternal glorified resurrected body there in the heavens that he dwells in in the same way you'll see the tabernacle it's not very impressive outwardly. All the beauty of the tabernacle was internal. Outwardly, it's made of badger skins and, and animal skins. All the beauty was on the inside. Well, it's the same with Jesus as well, too. Jesus outwardly was very common. It tells us in Isaiah 53, there's, there's, there's nothing beautiful about him that we should desire him. He was very common. He just was a natural man outwardly. But inwardly, is where all the beauty of Jesus was because he was deity on the inside. He was God internally and all the beauty of who he was was internal and at the Mount of Transfiguration you saw that glory and deity radiating out of his body of flesh and that glory coming outwardly. So again, be thinking of these things. Maybe you'll see things even that we don't touch upon. I don't want to make it too tedious and stay in these chapters forever, but know that there is purpose and benefit of looking at these things. They represent things of Christ. They also, in many ways, point to things that somehow are in existence in heaven. The book of Hebrews gives more commentary on that. But notice it all begins in chapter 25 by telling us that God... Wanting now to build a worship system, he's given people his law, and now going from the law, which they were to be obedient to, he goes now to a system of worship. And he's going to tell them to build this tabernacle structure where the worship system and the sacrificial system will be operated out of. Reminds us of this very thing. God gives them the law, which is about obedience. The law is about obeying God. The tabernacle is about worshiping God, which reminds us of this. God wants more than just our obedience. He gave them a law, but he didn't stop there. He then gave them a system of worship because he wants their devotion and he wants their hearts. And that's important for us to remember. Listen, do not reduce your spiritual life to just following rules and regulations. God wants more than just your obedience. Does he want your obedience? Yes. Does God want you to obey him and follow what his word says and live according to the scripture? Absolutely. But God also wants your devotion. He wants you to be a worshiper. He wants your heart involved. He doesn't want you to just robotically follow commands and just do and don't do things that are written in the word of God. He wants your devotion. He wants you to be a worshiper and have passion and devotion in your heart towards the Lord and to be able to experience him in a love devotional relationship as well. And the way he begins to do this now is he tells Moses, first of all, Moses, I want you to speak, verse 2, to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. So God says, Moses, I want you to request that the people would bring an offering to me. Now take notice, here is God's instruction to his people regarding an offering. God's about to do a work among them. He's about to do, he's about to, in essence, an Old Testament version of a building project. It was a tabernacle. It was a temporary system of worship. But God says, I'm about to do something and I want you to give my people an opportunity 
to participate in what I'm doing. So he says, tell the people to bring me an offering. Now, notice from God's perspective, the offering wasn't given to Moses. It wasn't given to the congregation of Israel. Notice God says to bring me an offering. Was the offering contributed as God's people to God's work and to what God was doing and to the system of worship that was among them? Yes, practically speaking, but most directly and personally, God says, I want it to be given to me. This is God's way of worship. When we give an offering, that we give it in an attitude of worship unto the Lord and say, Lord, I want to support what you're doing. I want to be involved in what you're doing. So, Lord, I give this to you because I believe that you're in this. And so I'm bringing it to you. And here God says, let them wait, bring to me an offering. Notice also another requirement. God says, I want you to receive it from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. He says, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Almost indicating that God says, if it's not given willingly from the heart, then don't take it from them. If they're going to offer it begrudgingly, God says, I don't want it because I don't really need it. I mean, think about it. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Imagine there's all this fire and this glory cloud and God is manifesting his power in so many ways to Israel. I would surely think that the people should be pretty convinced that if God wants to whoop together a, a tabernacle and, and make a tent and have a few badger skins and a little bit of... That it's not like God saying, man, I, I mean, I can make glory clouds and I can part red seas. and uh, But I mean, I, I don't know if I can build a tent. I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. So I need your help. Can you please help me to build a tent? No, God can do it. God's giving them the privilege to participate. The opportunity to be involved. So God says, I want it willingly if they want to give. I want them to do it out of the willingness of their heart. That they want to participate. They want to have the privilege to be involved and share with some of what I've entrusted to them to participate in what he's doing. And again, when we look at the biblical explanation of giving in the scripture, it is never by compulsion. It's never by pressure. It tells us in the New Testament, in the books of Corinthians, that each person should give cheerfully, that we should not give by compulsion or out of necessity, not because we feel like we have to or because it's, it's being promoted in a way whereby you know, we feel that if we don't contribute, well, then everything's going to fall apart and God's broke and if we don't help God out, then his work can't get done and somehow God's mismanaged his resources many times it's presented and if you don't bail God out, then his ministry won't succeed. Listen, that. God knows nothing of that. In God's word, giving is always something between him and his people where God says do it proportionally, do it generously, and do it willingly. As you determine in your heart, even in the New Testament, you know, I don't see things mandated upon God's people. It's a giving out of grace where according to what you pray and determine in your heart with willingness and desire, you say, Lord, I want to do this because I want to worship you with this area of my life as well and entrust you with this also and to become a giver like you're a giver. God, you're a giver. And as your child, I want to represent you in my nature and therefore I want to be a giver as well. And something very freeing, giving again isn't a way of God, as people have said before, a way of God raising funds. It's many times a way of God raising children because God's teaching us to be like him and teaching us how to trust him as the provider of everything and say, Lord, it all belongs to you anyway. I'm just turning a portion of it back over to you to be involved in what you're doing. So verse 3 gives us then down to verse 7, a description of some of the materials that they were to receive for the construction 
and what they were about to put together. Notice, to receive from them gold and silver and bronze. And again, as you look through these things, some of them have symbolic, you know, indications. Gold's always a, you know, a metal of, of uh, you know, of, of, and silver of redemption. Gold is a, a picture of that which is divine and bronze of brass. And you, know, you can follow these things through the scripture. Blue is of heaven and, and purple of royalty and scarlet of redemption. And again, as you look at these materials, you think, where did the children of Israel get all this stuff? I mean, weren't they just slaves in Egypt? But what happened is they were coming out of Egypt. Remember what God told them to do? He told them to ask of the Egyptians spoils and the Egyptians, like back pay, gave them a bunch of stuff. So what in essence is happening here? They're just giving back to God what God gave to them. They were a bunch of poor slaves. <laughs> and God lavished them with all these things. And God's saying, uh, if you want to share a part of it back now of what I've entrusted to you, uh, here's an opportunity for you to do that. And he would use these things, different types of skins of badgers, acacia wood for construction of the framework, the oil for the menorah lamp and spices for the anointing oil and sweet incense and uh, different types of stones for the ephod and the breastplate of the priests. And verse 8, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Again, take note that's the heart of God in this. God wants to dwell among them. God always wants to be in the midst of his people. The heart of the God of the Bible is not a God that's aloof, that's disconnected, that created the heavens and the earth and he just put it into motion. He steps back and doesn't want anything to do with it or all the people on the planet. No, the God of the Bible is a God who says, I am a personal God, a loving God, and I want to dwell with you. I want to be a part of your lives. God always, from Adam and throughout the Old Testament, ultimately into Christ, who not only saves us from our sins, but Jesus says, I want to come live in your life. I want to be involved in your life and be a part of your life. He wants to dwell with us. So God says, do this because I want to dwell among my people in the sanctuary. Now, was God, in a sense, indicating here, oh, well, I mean, then God's limited to locality. He's, he's only there with his people. Of course not. But this is a place that God met with his people in the sanctuary. I don't know about you. I realize that God is an omnipresent God, but I also realize that there are certain places, I hope, like the sanctuary, where God comes and manifests himself among his people. And where the presence and the glory of God is manifest in a personal way. Again, Jesus said, whenever two or three gather together in my name, I'm there in the midst. Look, can we as more than two or three people in this room tonight try and remember that when we come together in this sanctuary so that with the spirit of faith and anticipation as we worship and we assemble here, we can realize when we come together, look, this isn't just a meeting this is a place where we meet with God because Jesus chooses to show up. I I'll tell you something. One of the most frustrating things for me, and it typically only happens maybe one time. I know it happened you know, one time with my worship leader in York where uh, our worship leader from the, the front said something along the lines of, well, well I'm, I'm glad to see at least a few of you are here this evening. And, and I was so angry at him afterwards for saying that, for drawing attention. Although there only seemed like there were a few people here kind of like feeling sheepish because more people didn't show up to the worship service. And I pulled him aside after the service and I said, do not ever insult the spirit of Jesus in the midst of one of our meetings again. I said, listen, if two people show up, 
Jesus is there as well, and that is very, very important. That's well worth having a meeting. If two people are there, Jesus is there. Because Jesus said, when two or three come together in my name, I'm in the midst. And, and, and so important that we remember that with a spirit of anticipation, the living Jesus, he shows up at our meetings. He's ever-present. He's with us. And that makes the sanctuary an exciting place to come. That makes me want to come to the sanctuary because I know that Jesus shows up at the sanctuary. This person may not show up. That person may show up. But... <laughs> Jesus is going to show up, so that makes me want to show up. That makes me excited about wanting to come to the house of the Lord today, even as he said he would dwell in the sanctuary among them. Verse 9, again, according to all that I show you, again, very specific, Moses, make the pattern of the tabernacle and its furnishings just so you shall make it. Now, basically, chapter 25 is going to give to us from verse 10 through the rest of it, the furnishings inside the tabernacle. And basically three of the furnishings are described in chapter 25. The Ark of the Covenant, we see as well described the table of showbread and often uh, thirdly as well the lampstand or what we often call the menorah. Verses 10 through 16 describe the Ark of the Covenant. It tells us, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, for sake of reference, a cubit, a standard cubit in that day, was believed to be around 18 inches, or about a foot and a half. So as you read these different dimensions here, and I know, again, it can be kind of tedious, the details, but God's a detail-oriented God. And Moses was to make it detailed because it represented something eternal and heavenly. I think that's a good reminder because when God tells you to do something in your life and he gives you details, you have no idea what may be behind why he's telling you to do something in a detailed and orderly way. Do it well and pay attention to details. It mattered to God. And the cubit was about 18 inches. So as you multiply you know, a foot and a half times these dimensions, the Ark of the Covenant, we can tell from this here, was basically this wooden box. We're going to see it's overlaid with gold. And its dimensions would be about three foot nine inches in length and then about two foot three inches in its width and two foot three inches in its height. He goes on to describe it, overlaying it with gold. You shall cast, verse 12, four rings of gold for it. Put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two on the other. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them as well with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. Again, remember, the ark was not to be touched. It was where God's glory was manifested. It's where God's presence was manifested. And again, we're going to see later on in David's reign uh, that a man named Uzzah actually touches the ark and he dies for it because he tries to put his hand, in a sense, and, and touch and put his hand upon where the glory of God was. And God says, no, no, uh, I don't like to share my glory with people. And if you try and put your hand upon the glory of God, God dealt with that very severely. So they were, remember, to bear the ark. They weren't to touch it. They were to carry it. So you had these poles that went through the loops or these rings on all four corners and the, the Kohathites and the different uh, Israelites among the tribe of Levi would carry and bear this ark on their shoulders and the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, verse 15, they shall not be taken from it so they were to remain in it until it got to its permanent resting place in Jerusalem while they were making it portable and you shall put into the ark of the covenant 
the testimony which I gave you. So basically a reference to the tablets of stone that God gave him. Now we know later on, two other things were put inside the Ark of the Covenant as well. That's Aaron's budded staff as well as a jar of manna. But at this point, the two tablets of stone put inside the Ark of the Covenant, this, again, gold, this wooden box overlaid with gold that was to be carried around. And on top of it now, verse 17, down through verse, uh, verse uh, yeah, yeah, excuse me, 17 down through verse 22, we get the reference to the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant referred to often as the mercy seat. It says, you shall make a mercy seat, verse 17, of, the, of pure gold. So again, this isn't wood overlaid with gold. This lid on top of the, the box, the Ark of the Covenant, is actually solid gold. It says it's made of pure gold. It was two and a half cubits in its length and a cubit and a half in its width. So basically the same dimension, three nine by two three. And, and it was made of pure gold. Now, let's say if it's an inch thick, if you have something that's an inch thick, that's two foot nine, or excuse me, three foot nine by two foot three inches, that would weigh in gold, solid gold, about 750 pounds. Now, them, them Levi guys must have had some strong Levi jeans on or something. I mean, this was something heavy. This, this is a huge weight to be, and they're bearing this on their shoulders, carrying this around. And can you imagine the, the worth of that? In today's modern economy, that is 750 pounds of solid gold is the lid on top of this. And you shall take two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make on the two ends of the mercy seat. Again, cherubim, remember, were the angels that we often see in the presence of God. They had the four different faces and the wings. So you have these two cherubim, one on each side. Their wings will be touching in the center in the middle of the mercy seat, make one cherub at one end and the other cherub on the other, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends and one piece with the mercy seat. Verse 20, and the cherubim shall stretch their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The idea is looking down into the Ark of the Covenant. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, it was the lid, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there, verse 22, God says, I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. So, a very important piece here. This Ark of the Covenant, we know ultimately, goes, as we'll see later on, in the back chamber of the tabernacle, the place called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And it is this piece of furniture, this furnishing, there at the mercy seat, remember, as we're told here, where the presence of God would actually literally be manifest there in the Holy of Holies, and it is there at the mercy seat, we know later on, we'll see, where one time a year, the high priest alone, only one man in one time a year could go into the presence of God with the blood of a sacrifice, and he would apply that blood as an atoning for the sins of the nation upon the mercy seat, and it was there where blood atonement was made that God's mercy was given to his people for their sins and God's presence was manifest. 
And of course, as we look at these things, they picture and remind for us ultimately what Jesus would do. That the presence of God is not something that we can have direct access to apart from the blood atonement of Jesus Christ applied to where the presence of God and, and humanity meet. And it is only because of that that we can have access into the presence of God. In the same way that that high priest symbolically only one person with the blood of a sacrifice could go into once a year. We'll see more of this as we move on. Verse 23, he now comes to the second piece of furnishing inside the tabernacle, and that is basically what we call here in verse 23 the table or the table of showbread. He says, You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So basically about three foot long, about 18 inches wide, and two foot three high was the size of this table that was built. And again, verse 24, overlay it with pure gold, and ornate molding went around it. And you shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. A handbreadth is kind of the idea you would envision if you picture your hand, uh, a handbreadth. So there was this ornate molding, this beautiful molding that God built around it. You shall make it a frame of a handbreadth, and you shall make a gold molding for a frame all around, and make for it four rings of gold, just like the ark, and put the rings on the four corners and its legs, and the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table, so they would carry it much the same way. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table may be carried with them. So the table of showbread, and ultimately there would be 12 loaves of bread on this, changed out by the priest on a regular basis. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And there, that table of showbread, this was inside the first chamber we'll talk about in our studies ahead, what was called the holy place, the first room you would enter into in the tabernacle. As you went in, it would be over on the right-hand side. And this table was there with fresh bread regularly upon it. And of course, it was a reminder, again, of, of provision, that God's provision, that there was bread supplied. And ultimately, what is one of the things Jesus says about himself? He says, I am the bread of life. Again, we said earlier that Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So in the same way God was manifesting in the midst of his presence that his provision was available. Jesus is the provision for us spiritually. He is what nourishes our spiritual life. He's what gives to us and imparts to us spiritual life as the bread of life. So this table of showbread was a picture in many ways of the presence of Christ in that way. Thirdly and finally, we see in the remaining verses here a reference to the lampstand. This would be on the left as you went into the first room. He says, you also shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Again, take notice, this had no frame. It was made of solid, pure gold. And the lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft and branches and bowls of ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece Six branches shall come of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So ultimately, seven uh, branches, seven receptacles, the idea here, one center one, 
and then uh, three branches on each side, so the seven-branch menorah, we often call this. It was basically an oil lamp that would burn perpetually there to give light inside the tabernacle area. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch, an ornamental knob, and a flower. So you can picture how this was ornamental. And again, if you go in Bible commentaries or dictionaries and online, you can see artist renderings of this. And keep in mind, there are artist renderings of these things in the Temple Institute in Israel and places there as well. There are renderings of what they think are pretty accurate descriptions of this. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting those in the Temple Institute are struggling with, this thing is so massive and it says it's made of pure gold. And gold's a soft metal. So what they cannot figure out, which puzzles them, is how this was built as one hammered, molded piece of gold and that it didn't droop. Because when they've tried to construct this, they haven't been able to do it. They've built it with a steel frame in it and overlaid it with gold. But Because gold's a soft metal, whenever they tried to build something like this, out of solid gold in the way it's described here, they're puzzled by it because the gold always droops in, in the arms of the branches because of how soft of a metal it is. So somehow, again, it seems they were smarter than we were. Uh, we are back then as God was giving them the capacity to construct this to have a light and a source of light to minister there inside. Verse 34, on the lampstand, there were four bowls made like almond blossoms with ornamental knobs and flowers. Verse 35, again, the further description of the ornamentation to it. Look, verse 36, the knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. Again, emphasized, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold, and you shall make seven lamps for it. And they shall arrange its lamp so they shall give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays, these are what the priests would use. They'd go in and trim the wicks because this was an oil lamp that the priests would tend to to keep a constant burning and source of light inside the tabernacle. They shall also be of pure gold. And it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all utensils. And see to it, God says again, that you make it according to the pattern of not of what you think, but what was shown you on the mountain. So here again, this seven-branch lampstand, it's speculated that possibly it was probably somewhere around five foot tall. That's speculation, and that's because, keep in mind, this was the sole source of light in the tabernacle. There's no natural light in there. You're going to see that it's a tent covered, and the only source of light was from this seven-branch menorah or oil lampstand that was in there that basically would burn, and the priest's job was to continually put oil into it so it would continue to give a source of light inside so that they could continue to function and do their ministry practices. And again, as we look at this as this inner light and this soul light, Jesus himself said what in John chapter 8? Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness. In the same way, there was only one source of light for the priest to function inside that tabernacle and to conduct the worship system in order to approach and to worship God acceptably. There's only one source of light. That's Jesus. We live in a very dark world. And there are all types of other things that people try and find to illuminate their path and find their way and to be enlightened. But listen, the only way to be enlightened 
is to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am alone, the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. How wonderful to know that Jesus can give us the light spiritually to have a relationship with God and that if you follow Jesus, it's not complicated, if you choose to follow Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you, I will follow you as my Lord and my Savior. Jesus says you won't walk in darkness. You have the light of life. You have the light of how to live life the way in which God intended.